Welcome to Lecture 3 of Law 505. Today we are going to be addressing administrative law as well as introducing the idea of judicial review of legislation. I know that many of you will have taken or will take in the future an entire course on administrative law, and certainly my goal today is not to replicate that experience. We are not going to get into the fine points of administrative law, which I will leave for those classes. However, we are going to discuss administrative law from the public law framework in order to understand what administrative law can tell us about the three branches of Canadian government and also to understand how administrative law comes from the same fundamental project of ensuring respect for the rule of law and to ensure that each branch of government stays within its appropriate sphere that is accomplished through judicial review of statutes. So what I mean by that is both administrative law and judicial review of statutes, that is, review to ensure that statutes are constitutional, involve the courts reviewing the exercises of power of another branch of government in order to see that it stays within its proper scope of power. When the legislature passes a law, it is constrained by the Constitution. If it passes a law that is outside of its constitutional powers, that law will be given no force and effect by the courts. That is the project of judicial review of legislation, which we'll spend much of the course talking about, ensuring that the legislatures stay within the scope of their power. Administrative law, on the other hand, is still the courts supervising the exercise of authority. However, Instead of it being the courts supervising the exercise of authority of the legislatures, it is instead the courts supervising the exercise of power of the executive. And if you remember from last class, we said that the executive is all of those actors who exercise powers on behalf of the state, apart from judges and legislators. So... Almost every interaction you have with a government official will be an interaction with a member of the executive. And the executive only has such powers as are given to that individual through legislation or under the Crown prerogative. So when the executive exercises these powers, there needs to be a check to make sure that they haven't strayed beyond the scope of those powers. And that check is the courts reviewing the exercise of executive power within administrative law. So you can think, what is the process by which the courts keep the legislature constrained to its constitutional powers? That's the constitutional review of legislation. What is the process by which the courts keep the executive constrained to their proper scope of powers, to its proper scope of powers? That is administrative law. And when you think about it within that fundamental framework, all the doctrines fall much more easily into place. So what I've been getting at is called the constitutional basis for administrative law. It is this idea that the Constitution demands a source of authority for any executive action, and the courts have a role to play in policing the state to make sure it doesn't start claiming authority without a basis, authority without a statute or a prerogative power that can trace that authority back to. And I'm going to read a passage from a book um, administrative Law in Context. This is by Professor Colleen Flood. This, this part of the book is at least uh, by Colleen Flood and Jennifer Doling, who explain, I think, in quite clear terms 
the constitutional basis for administrative law. So they write, and it's a long quote, but it's important, so I'm going to say the whole thing. They write, The Canadian Constitution today is a collection of 25 primary documents outlined in the Constitution Act 1982. As an aside, I mentioned previously how there are these acts listed in the schedule to the Constitution Act 1982. We're going to talk more about that a bit later. That's what they're getting at there. Including, of course, the Constitution Act 1867, which brought Canada into existence. However, the formal written Constitution is only part of our whole working uh, Constitution, the set of arrangements by which we govern ourselves. It is the skeleton, not the whole body. The Constitution does not mention the basic features of Canada's system of government, those being responsible government, the national cabinet, the bureaucracy, and political parties. The flesh, the muscle, the sinews, the nerves of our Constitution have been added by legislation, by custom, by judgments of the courts, and by agreements between the federal and provincial governments. Thus, the Constitution is the lattice work on which the vines of the administrative state and administrative law grow. In essence, administrative law concerns the supervision, although this word is unduly loaded, by the courts of decision-making made pursuant to statute or the royal prerogative. Administrative boards and tribunals, ministers and departmental officials have no inherent power to make decisions that affect people's lives, but only those powers set out in their enabling statute. Thus, the role of the court in administrative law's outer frame is to make sure, at a minimum, that decision makers do not step outside the boundaries of what they are legally empowered to do. So that is administrative law in a nutshell, ensuring that the executive does not step outside the borders of what it is empowered to do. So I hope as a conceptual level, that's fairly clear and the need for administrative law is fairly evident. If we are going to have people or entities purporting to act on behalf of the state, we need to make sure they are doing so pursuant to lawful authority. And that's the role of judges to make sure that that is what is in fact occurring. So at that level, administrative law seems a sensible project and inevitable project as long as any authority is delegated away from the legislature to the executive. However, administrative law has a notoriously bad reputation for being a confusing and complicated and convoluted and confused area of law. In fact, Chief Justice McLaughlin has, has called the law of judicial review of executive actions, administrative law, a barbed and occluded thicket where we find only confusion. And Justice Stratus, one of the leading thinkers of administrative law on the Federal Court of Appeal, has called it a never-ending construction site where one crew builds structures and then a later crew tears them down to build a new, seemingly without an overall plan. And what Justice Stratus is getting at is how the law on how courts ought to conduct administrative law and administrative review is seemingly constantly in flux. And indeed, just last year, we had the Supreme Court of Canada rethink the law of judicial review again in a case called Vavilov that I'll discuss a bit during this podcast. So, with that in mind, that the basic concept is relatively straightforward, that in practice you are dealing with something that is described in pejorative terms by even those most close to it. I will move now to get into a bit more of the details. And you want to think about, generally speaking, what am I talking about when I talk about judicial review? Um, Administrative law is this idea that we have this executive and we're keeping them within the scope of their powers. Judicial review is the process where you go to court to challenge the exercise of one of those powers given to an executive decision maker by legislation or the royal prerogative. There are other things that can be done though. The, the judicial review is one of three options that you have if you are faced with government activity that you think may be illegal. One is to bring a lawsuit seeking damages. You say that I've been harmed by this 
decision maker doing something that he or she was not empowered to do. I've suffered a loss and I ought to have a remedy from the court. You can seek a statutory appeal occasionally. Sometimes there is a statute that explicitly says this decision maker will make a decision. If you don't like it, you can bring an appeal to the British Columbia Supreme Court. But finally, there is judicial review. And with judicial review, you don't have to point to any statute that lets you go to the Supreme Court to obtain a, a, an appeal, a review of the decision. Rather, you're relying on that court's inherent constitutional jurisdiction to ensure that there is a basis in law for executive action. The superior courts have inherent jurisdiction. We talked about this. And part of that inherent jurisdiction is a power to ensure that the executive stays within the scope of its authority. Now, we talked about how the inherent jurisdiction of the Supreme Court can be limited by statute in the previous class. One such statute is the Federal Courts Act, which gives the federal court system the power to judicially review the actions of federal boards, commissions, and other tribunals. That is, federal administrative decision makers. This is an exclusive power provided by the Federal Courts Act. So if you want to challenge by way of a judicial review, a decision of a federal decision maker, you have to go to federal courts. And this has been found to be appropriate in that it's not the legislation's effect to remove the possibility of judicial review. It's merely saying where it should happen, saying that it would be better suited to these federal courts. Again, if you remember, created under Section 101 of the Constitution, which allowed for statutory courts for the better administration of the laws of Canada. So the courts have said, okay, well, this is contemplated in the Constitution. It's okay to move this project of ensuring that federal executive power is exercised within its legislative or prerogative constraints. It's okay to move that to the federal court system. However, if there was a statute that purported to say nobody can review this decision to see if it stays within the scope of the authority given to the executive, the courts would not enforce that statute. And the reason is that would remove their role as supervising the executive to ensure that it continues to act pursuant to the rule of law, that it continues to act in such a way that its actions have a basis in statute or the royal prerogative. And where this comes up is when a statute has what is called a privative clause. A privative clause is a clause that says there will be a decision maker who will make this decision and that decision won't be subject to review in any court. For example, the Canada Labor Code, Section 58.1, says... Every order or decision of an arbitrator or arbitration board is final and shall not be questioned or reviewed in any court. No order shall be made, process entered, or proceeding taken in any court, whether by way of injunction, certiori, prohibition, quaranto, or otherwise, to question, review, prohibit, or restrain an arbitrator or arbitration board in any of their proceedings under this part. That is final and conclusive sounding. Does that mean that the courts will say, well, look, I'd love to review this decision, but uh, I'm not going to because that's a very strongly worded uh, section telling me not to. No, it doesn't mean that. Why not? Because the Constitution requires that executive functions stay within the scope of the legislation or the prerogative power that is relied upon to authorize that action. If there's an assertion that the Canada Labor Board, created by the Canada Labor Code, is doing something it has no power to do. For example, the Canada Labor Board is issuing an order that says that you must uh, pay 
double the property taxes this year and pay it directly to the board member Jones. Well, could they just, could board member Jones point to that section and say, nope, um, this is a decision of an arbitrator and it's finally conclusive and you can't question it. No, because that is outside of the jurisdiction of that decision maker. So no matter how strong the privative clause is, no matter how strong the statutory language is saying we're not going to let you review our decisions, no matter how strong it is, constitutionally, there must be an ability for the courts to review a decision to make sure it is founded in law. That's the fundamental idea of administrative law, and that's getting back to that constitutional foundation of administrative law. This was explained by the Supreme Court of Canada in a case called Dunsmuir in New Brunswick, which until the recent Vavilov case was the most important Supreme Court of Canada uh, decision to guide administrative law. The court said in Dunsmuir, the legislative branch of government cannot remove the judiciary's power to review actions and decisions of administrative bodies for compliance with the constitutional capacities of the government. The inherent power of superior courts to review administrative action and ensure that it does not exceed its jurisdiction stems from the judici- stems from the judicature provisions in sections 96 to 101 of the Constitution Act 1867. They're saying this is inherent in the constitutional structure which sets up these courts. We must be able to make sure the executive stays within the scope of its jurisdiction. But that raises the question, what is the legislature getting at when it includes these clauses, these privative clauses that say a decision shall not be questioned or reviewed in any court? The answer is they are trying to say that so long as you stay within the scope of the jurisdiction that's assigned to you, you don't go out and do something that is just beyond what we intended you to be able to do, then we're not going to have people be able to go get a second kick at the can by going to court and arguing their case over again and having a judge say, well, no, I would have decided it differently. And why is that? Well, there's an access to justice component about this because administrative decision makers are a much more easy for the average person to obtain a decision from than our courts. You probably have gotten an administrative decision. If you have immigrated to Canada, you applied for a visa, and there was a immigration officer who reviewed that application and decided whether it ought to or not to be granted. If you've applied for a building permit or a liquor permit if you've if you've had a wedding, if you've applied for a fishing permit or a, a hunting permit. Every one of these is an administrative decision maker who decides whether to grant or not grant a permit. You may have gotten into a dispute with a landlord if you've gone to any sort of settlement before the residential tenancy branch. Again, you've had an administrative decision maker decide your case. Now, if these decision makers have a final and binding decision, then the matter can be settled. If these administrative decision makers can have their decisions easily set aside in court, then there becomes an unfair, potentially, dynamic where the better resourced party to a dispute can continue to challenge the decision until it gets an answer it likes, whereas the less well-resourced party must content itself with the decision because it doesn't have the ability to challenge it. If you're in a dispute with your landlord, and let's say money is tight, and the residential tenancy branch decides, indeed, the landlord has done something wrong and must fix your suite or or something like that. Well, if the landlord's unhappy and the landlord has more resources, well, then they might go off to a judicial review. They might appeal that judicial review. If they keep getting a new chance to make their argument again to a new decision maker who's going to just decide the matter afresh, well, then it's very unfair because you may not have the resources to do that. You would have to win 
three times. You'd have to win in every decision maker, in front of every decision maker, whereas the landlord merely has to win once and then knows that you will not be able to bring the matter forward any further for financial or other reasons. So there's an access to justice issue that is, or an access to justice goal that is achieved through having administrative decision makers enjoy a level of finality to their decisions. On the flip side, however, there is a concern that administrative decision makers are often tasked with deciding questions of law. And people find it unsatisfying that a judge might look at a legal issue and say, well, I don't agree that the administrative decision maker decided that properly, but nevertheless not be able to review and change the decision of that administrative decision maker. So there's a question as to whether the rule of law requires that judges be able to say whether a decision was correct or not, at least on the law from an administrative decision maker. There are people who feel very strongly that this ought to be the case. I do not, but this is a matter of personal opinion, because I do not believe that there are necessarily just one correct answer to most legal questions. I think that I tipped my hand on that when I discussed the statutory interpretation last week. I believe that the same statute can be interpreted by reasonable people in different reasonable ways. I illustrated that with reference to the Nadon case from the Supreme Court of Canada and the proposition that surely Justice Moldaver, who disagreed with the majority, is good at statutory interpretation and interpreted the statute in a way that was reasonable and defensible, just not the way the rest of the court found that the matter ought to be interpreted. So if reasonable people can disagree, I don't have a problem with an administrative decision maker taking one interpretation of a statute and the court disagreeing, but nevertheless saying, well, I'm not going to overturn that decision on judicial review. Anyways, this is getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because what I'm prefiguring here is the idea of reasonableness as the standard of review. I'll get to that more in a second. But generally, what I want to frame is that there are two different types of uh, problems that you can assert with an administrative decision when you go to a court for judicial review. The first is you can assert that the administrative decision was unfairly made. This is a procedural fairness argument. The other is you can assert that the decision was wrong on its substance. So you can go to court and ask the court to review the substance of the decision or the process of the decision. And we're going to talk a bit about both types of review, procedural fairness review and substantive judicial review. I'm going to start by discussing review for procedural fairness. Procedural fairness, simply put, is an enforceable duty on an administrative decision maker to adopt procedural safeguards when making a particular decision, to adopt particular procedural safeguards when making a particular decision. An example might be the right to notice before a hearing, the right to have an oral hearing, the right to be represented by counsel at that hearing, the right to an unbiased and independent decision maker, a right to written reasons. What procedural fairness isn't, on the other hand, is the right to a particular substantive outcome. It's about the process that is used to get to the outcome, not what the outcome is. There are a number of different sources for a duty of procedural fairness. Sometimes it'll be set out in the enabling statute. So a decision maker will get his or her power from a particular statute, and that statute will mandate, for example, that there be an oral hearing before he or she exercises his or her power. There may also be a general procedural statute. Ontario has the Statutory Powers Procedures Act. British Columbia has the Administrative Tribunals Act and the Judicial Review Procedure Act. These statutes can set out general rules that may be applicable to more than one tribunal. 
Tribunals will also publish their own policies or guidelines, which can help guide what procedural fairness is owed to people who come before the tribunal. You can also look to the Charter or the Canadian Bill of Rights. These are things we'll talk more about in a later class. But finally, and what's more important for current purposes, is the common law. Historically, the common law duty of procedural fairness, uh, known formerly as natural justice, had two main components. The first was the right to know the case against you and the opportunity to respond to it. This is known as the Audi alterum partum rule, or hear the other side. The other component of the historic common law duty of procedural fairness is the right to an unbiased and independent decision maker. There's a Latin phrase for this as well. Nemo iodux in causa sua, or no one should be a judge in their own cause. So you want to think historically, there are these two key components to procedural fairness. Know the case to meet you and have a chance to respond to it and have an independent and unbiased decision maker. When do these common law duties of procedural fairness apply? Well, there's an answer that's given by the Supreme Court of Canada in a case called Cardinal and Kent Institution, where they say the administrative decision must be not legislative, that is, not a general bylaw passed by a municipality, etc., and it must affect the rights, privileges, or interests of an individual. So if your rights are not affected by a decision, you don't have a right to procedural fairness in relation to that decision. And similarly, even if your rights are affected, if it's fundamentally a legislative decision, that is a decision that is passed by a deliberative body to affect the rights of presumably many people, that is going to be a decision that will not attract a common law duty of procedural fairness. And then before getting into what is within the duty of procedural fairness, which is variable, I've got these high level ideas that it's the right to know the case and have a chance to respond into an impartial decision maker, but what that actually requires in a given case uh, do you have to cross-examine witnesses? Do you have a right to an oral hearing at all? Do you have a right to a written reply? Th these types of questions are all variable. Before we get into that, I want to just take a second and situate procedural fairness back within the framework I set out at the outset of what the judicial review process is. And so if you remember, Administrative law and judicial review all came back to the judicial branch, keeping the executive within its legislative jurisdiction, the jurisdiction created by the legislature for these executive actors. So where does this common law duty of procedural fairness fit in? Well, it's a presumption that the legislature would not have wanted to let the executive make its decisions unfairly. It's a statutory presumption that the jurisdiction did not include a jurisdiction to act unfairly. If the statute is abundantly clear that some process is not required, even if the court says, well, it would be much more fair if that process was required, you're not going to have a common law duty of procedural fairness that's going to mandate that that process occur because the court will say, well, you're within your jurisdiction. Now, there may be charter and Canadian Bill of Rights issues, leaving that for another time. Now, what you want to think about is why is there a procedural fairness duty? How does it fit within this administrative law framework? Well, when you are determining if the executive has stayed within its jurisdiction, you assume the legislature intended for that decision maker to act fairly. And the court says we will determine if the process was fair. And if it wasn't fair, then we'll find that you've exceeded your jurisdiction by making an unfair decision. So that's how it fits within the framework. Let's take a step back now, though, and let's think about the content of the duty of procedural fairness. I said that it varies 
from case to case. It's been described indeed as eminently variable. And the leading case, still the leading case, on the scope of the common law duty of fairness that is owed is Baker in Canada. This is one of the top 10 most influential and important Supreme Court of Canada cases. So I'm going to go through it with some care. So it's an immigration issue. It's a question of an applicant who was looking for permanent resident status. That is status to live and work in Canada, which allows you to then apply for citizenship after having that status for three years. It's the, it's the path to citizenship. Section 9.1 of the Immigration Act provided that applications for permanent resident status must come from outside of Canada. So in steps Ms. Baker, Mavis Baker. She is a citizen of Jamaica. She entered Canada as a visitor in August of 1981 and never left. She made a life in Canada. She supported herself as a live-in domestic worker and she was not documented. She had four children, all born in Canada, all Canadian citizens. And after having her fourth child in Canada, Ms. Baker suffered from a postpartum psychosis and was in fact diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and she applied for welfare. Two of her children were placed in the care of their, of their father and the other two were temporarily placed in foster care. So Ms. Baker was ordered deported after it was determined that she had worked without documentation and overstayed her visitor's visa. Ms. Baker applied for an exemption from the requirement to apply for permanent residence outside of Canada based on humanitarian and compassionate grounds. So the law said, if you want to apply for permanent resident status, you have to be outside of Canada to do so. You can't come here and stay without documentation and then apply for permanent resident status from within Canada. But Ms. Baker said, well, I've got these kids and I, I've been in Canada for such a long time. It would be um, an affront to humanitarian and compassionate concerns if I were to be ordered to leave Canada in order to apply for permanent resident status back in Jamaica. And she included submissions from a lawyer, a doctor, a letter from a social worker. The documentation showed that although she still had psychiatric problems, she was getting better. It stated that she might become ill again if she was forced to return to Jamaica. She couldn't continue her treatment, etc., etc. Ms. Baker's submissions also explained she was the sole caregiver for two of her Canadian-born children and that the other two depended on her for emotional support and were in regular contact with her. And the documentation submitted to the immigration authorities suggested that she would suffer emotional hardship if she were separated from her kids. What did she get in response? What did she get from the decision maker? A letter stating there were insufficient humanitarian and compassionate grounds to warrant processing her application for permanent residence within Canada. No further explanation. The letter was signed by an immigration officer named M. Caden. Ms. Baker's lawyer asks and is given the notes made by another immigration officer, G. Lorenz, which were used by Officer Caden when making his decision. And these Lorenz notes, this other immigration officer wrote in his notes, this case is a catastrophe. It is an indictment of our system that the client came here as a visitor in 81 and was not ordered deported until 92 and in April 94 is still here. The Lorenz notes went on to say that Ms. Baker is a paranoid schizophrenic and on welfare. She has no qualifications other than as a domestic she has four children in Jamaica and another four are born here. She will, of course, be a tremendous strain on our social welfare systems for probably the rest of her life. There are no H and C factors other than her four Canadian-born children. Do we let her stay because of that? I am of the opinion that Canada can no longer afford this type of generosity. However, because of the circumstances involved, there is a potential for adverse publicity. I recommend refusal, but you may wish to clear this with someone at Region. So let's think about this from a procedural fairness standpoint. Ms. Baker 
is somebody with a profound interest in this decision, right? It's whether she can stay in the country that she's lived in for 15 years or so with her children, where she's getting needed medical attention. And what was provided to her? Well, there wasn't an oral hearing. She submitted this documentation. She then got a very brief letter back saying there's insufficient humanitarian and compassionate grounds. And only when she asked did she get these notes that showed the type of reasoning that went into the decision. So Ms. Baker argued the duty of procedural fairness required that the minister afford her an oral hearing, written reasons for the denial of her humanitarian and compassionate request, and an unbiased decision maker. The Supreme Court of Canada held that no oral hearing was necessary, that written reasons were required, and that she was entitled to but did not get an unbiased decision maker. So the Supreme Court of Canada's reasoning in this case is the leading decision on how to assess what types of processes are demanded in a given case under the duty of procedural fairness. It sets out what has become known as the Baker factors. The Baker factors are the uh, considerations that a court is to weigh in deciding what degree of procedural fairness is required in a circumstance. In essence, where these Baker factors come from is the idea that not all administrative decisions are the same. Applying for a liquor permit so you can have a concert is not the same as applying for humanitarian and compassionate grounds to stay in Canada with your family. It's not the same as reviewing a decision to terminate you from the public service. There are decisions of greater or lesser importance, and there are circumstances where greater or less procedural fairness is required before the procedure will be found to be unfair and outside of the scope of what the courts will assume was the jurisdiction given to the executive. That is, on this presumption, the executive was not given the jurisdiction to act unfairly. So the court sets out these five factors that are, be the con that are to be considered and weighed in deciding if you're dealing with something where there's a low level of procedural fairness, you know, basically applying for a fishing license or something, to a high end of procedural fairness where you're basically going to get a court process. So here are the five Baker factors. Number one, the nature of the decision. Is this something that looks more like a judicial decision? Two parties fighting before a neutral person who is supposed to decide who wins or loses? Or does this more look like a purely administrative decision, like applying for a fishing license? If it looks more like a court decision, then more court-like procedures will be required. That's the first factor, the nature of the decision. The second factor is the nature of the statutory scheme. Well, what are we talking about here? Well, is there an appeal route within the statutory scheme, or is this the end of the line before judicial review? If it's the end of the line, more procedural fairness is required. Okay, what am I getting at here? Well, there's a number of statutory schemes that have a process where you have a first-level decision-maker who is tasked with deciding a whole bunch of different cases. Some statutes say after that first-level decision-maker has decided, if you're unhappy, you can apply for internal review. You're not going to the courts, but there's an internal appeal. A workers' compensation system works like that. You apply for a workers' compensation decision. If you're unhappy with it, you can go to the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal. And so the idea here is that if it's not the end of the line, the legislature may have said, look, we want people to get most of these decisions right and fair. We want it to go quickly. Whereas if we saddle these first-level decision-makers who get a big old pile of applications and have to deal with them, 
with too burdensome procedural fairness requirements, they're not going to be able to get through that pile and the statutory scheme is going to be frustrated. They say, we'll be contented with the idea that at this first level, you you deal with what you get. At the next level, you're going to get more fairness. That's the nature of the statutory scheme. Is it the end of the line before you go to judicial review? Or is the decision at issue one where there's an internal appeal available? Third factor, the importance of the decision to the person affected. The more important the decision, the more procedural fairness that's required in order for the decision to be seen as fair. Ms. Baker, staying in Canada with her kids, getting the uh, medical help she was uh, receiving, extremely important. Me getting a fishing license so I can go bug some fish with my friends, not very important. The more important the decision, the more procedural fairness the courts will say is required. That's the third factor, the importance. The fourth factor, legitimate expectations. Has the person been led to believe that a certain procedure will will ensue? If so, this could trigger a particular procedural steps. So this is the idea that if the tribunal is going to go out and say you're going to get an oral hearing and have that on its website and then suddenly decide, nope, no oral hearing for you, that may be unfair. It may be the case that the tribunal didn't have to offer oral hearings, but once they offered that, once they created a legitimate expectation, then they had to follow through and grant that expectation to be fair. They have to then go ahead and you know, announce to the public that we no longer are offering these oral hearings going forward. And then you would see if the need for an oral hearing was, was um, contemplated by the duty of fairness or if they were just going above and beyond. And of course, that gets at a, an important point. We are talking about the bare minimum uh, fairness required. There's no constraint on a tribunal offering more procedural fairness, more procedural protections than the bare minimums that the court will say are implicated by the presumption that the legislature wouldn't let you act unfairly. So legitimate expectations, you can think, is ordinarily a expectation as to a process that is known as procedural legitimate expectations. Sometimes people try to make a substantive legitimate expectations argument. This is the idea, oh, I was led to believe I would be getting that permit. Now, the courts have said that you cannot have a substantive legitimate expectation and come to the courts and ask us to enforce that substantive legitimate expectation. You may well have been led to believe you were going to get that permit, but that doesn't mean that you can come to the court and demand you get that permit. However, if the tribunal has given you a substantive legitimate expectation that you're going to have a particular result, this may increase the amount of fairness that is owed to you before they don't give you that result. For example, if a decision maker has advised you on a preliminary basis that it looks like you're going to get approval for your mine and then suddenly decide, nope, we're not going to approve the mine anymore, they may have an obligation to give you reasons that they're going to consider denying the approval and an opportunity to respond before they go ahead and change um, their mind on what they let you develop a substantive expectation in relation to. But I don't want to make that more complicated than it has to be. Let's just think of it this way, though, that If the decision maker makes you think a particular process is going to be followed or a particular outcome is going to be reached, this may elevate the level of fairness that is owed to you in a circumstance above what would otherwise be the minimum required at common law. Finally, the court has said you need to consider whether the statute explicitly contemplates giving the decision maker discretion as to what procedure to follow. If so, their choice should be respected. This all comes back to the fundamental principle that is at issue that we're talking about the courts respecting 
the jurisdiction of the executive decision maker as created by the legislature. So the court might say, boy, I don't, I wouldn't have thought that this was within the realm of, of what you'd be allowed to do, but the legislation very clearly gives you a discretion to choose, for example, as to whether to have an oral hearing or not. And the court may say, given that clear direction from the legislation, who be it for me to interfere? So those are the five Baker factors. The nature of the decision. Does it look more like the court or more like the fishing license? The nature of the statutory scheme. Is this the end of the road or is there an internal appeal before you'd have to get to judicial review? The importance of the decision to the person affected. How important is it to the person who is the subject of the decision? The more important, the more fairness that might be required legitimate expectations. Has the tribunal let the person believe that a process or even an outcome would follow? If so, they may have an elevated duty of fairness. And finally, remember, it all comes down to the idea that the statute uh, should be respected and the jurisdiction created by the statute should be respected. And that is what we are confining the executive decision maker to uh, within. So therefore, we need to consider if the statute gives the decision maker discretion as to what procedure to follow. So, Baker factors, those are them. They're important. Remember them. So, question considering these five factors, was there a duty on the minister to give Miss Baker an oral hearing? And the court said no. And I said the five factors here point in different directions, though. They suggest that Ms. Baker needed to be given a fair opportunity to present her side of the story, but not an oral hearing. One, the nature of the decision. Well, it's not like a judicial decision. You don't go to court for a uh, decision on a humanitarian and compassionate exception on an immigration issue. You, you make an application to an administrative decision maker. Not like a judicial decision at all, in fact. There's no cross-examination witnesses. There's, there's no... Um, adversarial process. Two, the nature of the statutory scheme. There's no internal appeal route. This decision of the officer was final pending judicial review. No appeal route means more process. The importance of the decision, super important, more process. Legitimate expectations, none. There was nothing that Ms. Baker could point to saying that there was a uh, a process, including an oral hearing, that would be followed. Less process. Five, choice of procedure. The statute gives the minister a lot of flexibility. Less process. So, the court said, we've looked at these five factors that go in different directions. They require a fair opportunity to present your side of the story, but not an oral hearing. So, therefore, minimum common law standards of procedural fairness were not breached in Miss Baker's case solely by them not providing her with an oral hearing. What about the fact that she didn't get any formal reasons for her decision? Did that violate the procedural duty of procedural fairness? Well, this is a bit complicated. The Supreme Court of Canada said there was a duty to give written reasons to Miss Baker. However, she got written reasons, despite the fact that all she got was a letter saying, insufficient humanitarian and compassionate grounds. The court said, that wasn't your reasons. You asked and you got those notes from Officer Lorenz. Those were the reasons. Even though they weren't given to you at the outset when you got your decision, they weren't the basis that the immigration official said you're denied. They said, no, insufficient humanitarian and compassionate grounds. Thank you, Ms. Baker. But when you asked, you got this, these notes, and these provide the explanation. So the court said there is a duty to provide reasons, but it was met in this case. Now, before Baker, everybody thought that there was no common law duty to provide written reasons as part of the duty of procedural fairness at all. And if you remember, I said at common law traditionally, what did you have? You had the duty to... Um, to know the case to meet and have an opportunity to meet the case and you had the obligation to provide a fair and impartial uh, decision maker 
not exactly clear where the um, the reasons fit within that framework. And so the assumption had been there was not a common law duty to provide reasons. Everyone said it was a good idea. It helps ensure better decisions, more informed appeals, and it makes people feel like they were treated fairly. But there's a cost and delay countervailing concern. Supreme Court of Canada and Baker, though, said, it is now appropriate to recognize that in certain circumstances, the duty of procedural fairness will require the provision of a written explanation for a decision. The strong arguments demonstrating the advantages of written reasons suggest that in cases such as this, where the decision has important significance for the individual, where there is a statutory right of appeal or in other circumstances, some form of reasons should be required. They temper this, though. They temper this by saying that this common law duty to provide reasons must recognize the day-to-day reality of administrative decision-makers. That is what allowed the decision-maker to point to these, these notes, this recommendation. They said that Lorenz participated in the decision-making and no other reasons were offered. By inference, we can then understand that these were the reasons. So, so far, Ms. Baker has lost on the first two procedural fairness arguments that she raised. But now she has a, a, new, a new thing on her side. She has these polemical reasons, these, this um, very opinionated and, and, and seemingly disparaging uh, reasons that were said about her. Did that make the decision violate the duty of procedural fairness? to not have a decision maker with a reasonable apprehension of bias, Supreme Court of Canada said yes. And so bias, impartial decision maker, you want to think that this is reviewed on an objective standard. The question is not whether the decision maker was in fact biased. That is enough, but it's not required. You don't have to get all the way to show that somebody was in fact biased against you. And That is very hard to do. Rather, it's an objective test of whether the person appeared biased. The question that the court asks is, what would an informed person viewing the matter realistically and practically, and having thought the matter through, conclude? Would he think that it is more likely than not that the decision maker, whether consciously or unconsciously, would not decide fairly? Interestingly enough, The test for bias, as articulated by the Supreme Court of Canada, uses solely the the male pronoun he when describing the hypothetical, informed, reasonable person. You know, a deeply ironic place to show implicit sexual bias. Anyways, what matters that you take away is that it is this objective test. And it's an objective test that's going to take into account the context of the decision. It's an informed objective test. In this case, the context was you have this extremely important humanitarian and compassionate decision, and immigration officers have, officers have to show an understanding of the importance of diversity, understanding of others, and an openness to difference. Mr. Lorenz failed. He was operating on stereotypes. He linked to Ms. Uh, Baker's mental illness her training as a domestic worker, the fact she had several children, and then concluded she would be a strain on a social welfare system for the rest of her life. So if the decision maker violated the duty of fairness, what is the proper remedy? Well, usually the decision will be squashed, quashed, sorry, quashed, and sent back down for a new decision. If the decision was tainted by bias, a new decision maker must be used. Well, so then doesn't, wait, couldn't the decision maker rule against the applicant again? Couldn't Miss Baker lose the second time around? Yes, absolutely. And that is a difficulty with administrative law. Victory almost always simply means the same administrative decision maker or perhaps a different official within the same administrative body will make the decision again, and you very well could lose the second time around. So for the purposes of this course, I want you to remember 
these Baker factors and this idea that the courts will look at these five factors to assess what degree of fairness is owed to an individual by an administrative decision maker. And I want you to think that the way this fits within the broader framework is that we assume these executive officials acting in the executive branch are going to act fairly, that the legislation that gives them them, their powers presumes they will act fairly. And if they don't, the courts will say, you are outside the scope of your powers. If the legislation were to say they could act unfairly, well, then the court wouldn't do that. But in the absence of anything saying that they can act unfairly, we will presume, the courts will presume they must act fairly. And in Ms. Baker's case, they did not. Just quickly, what are some of the things that you may ask for in terms of a process? The, the base level one is notice that a decision is going to be made and disclosure of the information on which the tribunal will base its decision. You may ask for some opportunity to participate or make your views known. You may ask for more, for a full hearing similar to what occurs in court. You may ask for an opportunity to give evidence, to cross-examine. You may ask for an opportunity to call expert witnesses. You may ask for a right to have counsel with you. You may ask for reasons, oral reasons, written reasons. These are the types of procedural accommodations that you may ask for within an argument of procedural fairness. And you need to ask for these at the tribunal level. When you are before the administrative decision maker, you are to ask for these accommodations. And if you don't, if you don't ask for something or you don't complain and say that the process that is being followed is unfair, you may have difficulty raising it on judicial review. So that is the procedural fairness half of administrative law. I'm going to move on now and talk about the substantive review of a decision. This is if you don't like what was decided by an administrative decision maker, what do you do? Can you go to judicial review and try to convince the court the decision maker got it wrong? And the answer is sometimes. Sometimes you can try to convince the court the decision maker got it wrong. But sometimes you have to go quite a bit beyond and say, look, not only did they do something that you, court, might have not done, or you might even find incorrect, but what they did was outside the scope of what even could be reasonable. So this is the question of standard of review. When a court is looking at the substance of a decision, what was actually decided, how much deference will they give to the administrative decision maker? And the history of the standards of review used by courts in reviewing decisions of administrative tribunals has been marked by twists and turns. And my goodness, another one just happened last fall with the, or at the end of the year, actually, with the release of the latest trilogy, including the leading case of Vavilov. And I didn't assign Vavilov as reading. If you go through admin law, you will have to read Vavilov for sure. And if you practice in administrative law, you will have to be very familiar with Vavilov, at least until it gets changed in presumably about 10 years, because that's how long these big decisions seem to last. Uh, Dunsmuir was about 10 years earlier than Vavilov, which was and they come every 10 years. Anyways, I won't get into all that, but I will tell you a little bit about the Vavilov decision. For one, it is as interesting on its facts as any administrative law decision has ever been. If you've ever seen the TV show, The Americans, that was inspired by this family, by the Vavilov family. What it was, was a, this case concerned an individual born in Toronto in 1994 didn't realize when he was born that his parents were actually Russian spies uh, posing as Canadians under assumed names. He thought he was a Canadian citizen by birth. He lived and identified as a Canadian. He held a Canadian passport. In 2010, his parents are arrested and charged with espionage, and they plead guilty and are returned to Russia. And following their arrest, Mr. Vavilov tries to renew his Canadian passport and is unsuccessful. However, in 2013, he was issued a, a certificate of Canadian citizenship. But then in 2014, the Register of Citizenship canceled his certificate on the basis of her interpretation of the Citizenship Pact. And that exempts children of a diplomatic or consular office or other representative or employee in Canada of a foreign government from the general rule that if you're born in Canada, you get citizenship. So she said, well, you were the kid of... Uh, 
representatives of a foreign government. They were just spies. You didn't know it, but you were. And so you don't get citizenship by birth. She says this applies to Mr. Vavilov. He is not and never has been a citizen. And he is not entitled to um, a certificate of citizenship and ultimately then a passport either. So he brings an application for judicial review about the interpretation given by the registrar to Section 3.2 of the Citizenship Act. And the Supreme Court has before it again this question of how do you approach a judicial review of an administrative decision maker who is interpreting a law and applying it to a set of facts? Do you interpret the law yourself and simply say, well, if I will interpret this and I will decide how I would decide the case and that's what's going to govern? Or do you in require instead only that the decision maker have a reasonable interpretation of the law and defer to that decision maker on that question and on other questions of how that would apply to the facts before the decision maker? And the court decided that the presumption will be reasonableness. Ordinarily, you will only be able to go seek to overturn a case on judicial review and succeed in, in so seeking if you can show the decision on review was unreasonable. There are two exceptions to this. One is where the statute suggests that a correctness standard was contemplated by the legislature. That is, where the statute shows that the legislature wanted the court to have the final say on a question of law or the application of law to facts. The second is when the rule of law requires consistency on a question. You can't defer to an administrative decision maker's interpretation of a statute when you're dealing with constitutional questions because you can't have the constitution applying differently in different circumstances. General questions of law of central importance to the legal system as a whole and questions related to the jurisdictional boundaries between two or more administrative bodies. This third one is when there's two administrative decision makers who both are saying they have jurisdiction over an issue, the court needs to step in and decide. However, generally, so long as the administrative decision maker interprets the law in a reasonable way, the courts will defer to that decision maker. That's the general takeaway from Vavilov. I don't want you to worry for the purposes of this course of learning Vavilov in detail. You should know it's the latest word from the Supreme Court of Canada on what substantive judicial review will look like. And you should also know that the presumption is reasonableness. So the finer details, though, of Vavilov and of administrative law in general, as I said, are beyond the scope of this class. This is not an administrative law class. This is a public law class. And our goal is to teach you about the structure of the Canadian government and about how the Canadian Constitution works to set that structure and to consider how uh, problems as between different branches of the Canadian government structure are resolved. What I want you to take away on this lecture is not then the details of Vavilov, but I want you to understand how a reasonableness review fits within that overarching structure of administrative law that I described, where you have the legislature giving power to an executive decision maker, an official who is a part of the executive, and how the courts make sure that that decision maker exercises powers only within that jurisdiction that he or she is given. And you want to think about when, when thinking about the question of substantive review, reviewing the substance of the decision, that the courts have decided that the proper way to presume the legislature uh, had intended is that it intended that the decision makers could only make reasonable decisions. They would not grant a administrative decision maker the power to make unreasonable decisions. And the court said, listen, if you can show me that the legislature 
wanted the decision maker to only make decisions that the court would agree with were 100% correct. That is exactly what the court would have decided if it was reviewing the matter as a question of first instance. If you can show that, then indeed, that is a proper thing for courts to do. Otherwise, the courts will respect the legislature's intention to give these decisions to these administrative bodies who may have expertise, who may increase access to justice by having these decisions heard more cheaply and quickly than if you have to go to courts. So that we'll, we'll presume that you don't want the courts interfering, legislature. However, we'll also presume that you didn't let these people make unreasonable decisions. So if you can come to my court and show that the decision at issue was unreasonable, I'll say it's outside of the scope of the jurisdiction of this decision maker. And what will I do? Send it back for a redetermination ordinarily. So that is fundamentally what I want you to take away from this case and from this discussion of substantive judicial review generally. I want you to think substantive judicial review, reviewing the substance of a decision, is about making sure that administrative decision makers do not step outside the scope of their delegated jurisdiction by making unreasonable decisions. If you can understand that framework, then you should be able to understand how administrative law fits within the public law overarching scheme. I am not going to discuss the Trinity Western University case that I originally had on the syllabus at this time. It's a very interesting administrative law case. Uh, I am going to discuss it later when we get to the charter because the way uh, charter rights are dealt with in the administrative law context through this charter values framework is fascinating, a bit confusing, and a thing to think critically about. So I want to not talk about that case until we have a chance to have the proper grounding in the charter to do so. So I'm going to conclude the administrative law component of this course then by emphasizing one last time that what's really important is to understand this idea that the judiciary plays this role of making sure the executive stays within the scope of its legislatively provided powers and those powers provided under the royal prerogative through judicial review of administrative action. And if the executive starts taking actions that are outside the scope of its powers, the courts will step in and overturn those decisions in a judicial review application. If you understand that and you understand how procedural fairness works into that framework, i.e. there's a presumption that the legislature intended for the decision makers to be fair, and reasonableness works into that framework, i.e. there's a presumption that the legislature only wanted the courts to intervene when the decision makers were making unreasonable decisions, not to second guess every decision and overturn it if they come to a different conclusion than the court might have come to. If you understand the idea that the same statute can be interpreted in different ways by different people, and different interpretations could be seen as reasonable. If you understand that, then you're in good shape on administrative law. And you'll be in good shape to understand the next topic I'm going to introduce, which is the judicial review of legislation.